Well, hello, everyone. How are you doing? Well, before we dive in, I want to explain uh, to you on Friday, I was out uh, on a lake with my younger son, uh, our last uh, child in the nest, and I have three years with him, and I want to just sort of spend time with him doing what he likes to do, uh, not what I like to do, which you can't know how hard that is, uh, and he likes to wakeboard. And so we were out on a lake on a boat, and I don't have a lot of experience with it. And there's this little door that you pick up uh, to get maybe the skis out. And, uh, and I looked up for just a moment, and that door came down on my big toe. And, uh, and so I'm sporting kind of a Jesus look today with the sandals because I can't wear closed-toed shoes. Is that okay with you? All right. So I'm just going to try to be like Jesus. If I can't on the inside, I'm at least going to try to look like him on the outside. There you go. Uh, as many of you already know, I became a Christian at the age of 14. It's when I crossed the line of faith. And then at the age of 15, because I was so captured by this relationship with God and this relationship with this new family, a spiritual family called the church, I made a commitment at the age of 15 to become a pastor, to become a minister. And I didn't tell a lot of people this, but I just had this sense to set a life goal that by the time I finished my life, at the very end, that I might be pastoring a church of 500 people. And I, that was my life goal. Now, I'm also a planner. I like to lay out my plans. And so when Roseanne and I got married at the age of 20, I laid out a five-year plan for us. In the first year, I was going to finish my undergraduate degree in theology. Then the next four years... I was going to begin a new four-year master's degree in theology, which required a move to Dallas, Texas. Now, in that five-year plan, matter of fact, at the end of it, uh, May or June upon graduation, I scheduled in that Roseanne and I, at the end of graduation of my master's program, I scheduled in that we would have, in May or June, our first child. <laughs> Why are you laughing? You see, I said May or June, I gave it a little wiggle room because our plans have to be flexible. And so I laid that out. And that was my five-year plan. Well, in the first year of our master's degree program, our daughter Jennifer came. I've always been considered an overachiever. And she came. And I was extremely excited about the arrival of our daughter. But if truth be known, I was also a little miffed. Why? Because the dream and the plan I had laid out was crushed in that moment. You see, Roseanne was working full-time, and she was paying the bills while I went to school full-time and had the opportunity of working in a really cool ministry, volunteering, that uh, worked with business and professional people in the Dallas Fort Worth area, uh, helping them to bring faith, their faith into the marketplace. And this was a wonderful journey we're on, but now that Jennifer was was arriving, I would need to quit going to school and quit working with this ministry and get a full-time job so Roseanne could stay home with the baby. And I thought to my discouraged self, what does a guy with an undergraduate degree in theology do full-time? And the answer to that question, in case you're wondering, is not very much. So I was really pretty discouraged. Well, a little twist in the events uh, came when a month before Jennifer was to be born, the ministry I was volunteering for offered me a part-time job which replaced Roseanne's full-time salary, which enabled me to work uh, part-time and continue my master's program part-time. 
But as a result, we moved from Dallas to Arlington, Texas, where the ministry was located, and I started attending the church that the director of the ministry attended. Are you following me? Okay, so what ends up happening is um, I uh, continued on in this ministry while I was going to school part-time, and uh, I began working with some of the leaders or business leaders in the Arlington community who happened to attend that church, in addition to other business leaders in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. A year after I was in Arlington and attending this church, the senior minister of the church resigned. And then two more years goes on, and they still haven't found a pastor. So as it so happens to be, the leaders that I was working with, helping them bring their faith into the marketplace, also happened to be on the search team looking for a new senior minister for the church. And they came to me and asked me, would I consider being the senior minister of this church? Now, I had just finished my master's program. I had absolutely no experience in church work, and I was 28 years of age. If I would have sent my resume in just like anybody else and they looked at that stout resume, it would have caused them to chuckle. (laughs) But I had this unique entrance to the inside of the place that gave me a rare opportunity. And so at the age of 28, I became the senior minister of Pantego Bible Church in Arlington, Texas. The starting size of the church, 500. I started where my vision ended. Why? Because I had a daughter who was born who destroyed my plan. (laughs) Isn't that very comforting to know? When we're studying through the story, when you're studying the Bible, you need to know that there are two stories going on at the same time. There is the upper story and there is the lower story. The lower story is the details of our life, the stuff that we busy ourselves with. And the same is true in the Bible. When you read the Bible, you're going to see a lot of lower story stuff, things happening in people's life, day-to-day stuff like dealing with illnesses and overcoming obstacles and paying the bills and passing the mashed potatoes, you know, all the stuff you do and the the details of life. And we, like the characters of the Bible, are consumed with lower story living. But as you're reading the Bible, every single story, there is an upper story. There's this thing that's going on that you could miss it if you get too much into the details. You get the sense that God is up to something in the upper story. The upper story is God's big plan. So we've been journeying through the story chronologically using this tool called the story in the hopes that we wouldn't get lost in the details of the lower story, but that all of us together might catch a glimpse of the upper story, what God is up to, and what that means to our daily lives. That's our, that's our goal. Now, there is no story in my estimation, at least in the Old Testament, that better illustrates this than chapter 3 of the story, the story of Joseph from slavery to deputy Pharaoh. From slavery to deputy Pharaoh. Now, you may recall in the second chapter of the story, God unfolds his plan. He is going to build a new nation using this old guy and barren wife named Sarah 
to, to build a brand new nation on. And it is through this nation that God's going to start and be, build that he's going to reveal himself and his plan to get us back. Because in chapter 1, we learned that sin entered into our nature and separates us from God, and that has to be addressed, that has to be dealt with, but we can't do it on our own. God's going to have to step in and do something, and so he starts this nation. And somehow, through this nation, he's going to reveal his plan. Now we've come to chapter 3, the story of Joseph How does this fit in? First of all, I want you to uh, show me if you brought your story or a Bible. Hold it up for me. Let me see it all over the place. Excellent. Now, as you bring the story down or the Bible, I want you to turn to chapter 3 on page 23 or Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to dive in. The main character of this chapter is a young man named Joseph. We learn at the opening of the story that Joseph is 17 years old, just a young lad. And Joseph has 10 older brothers who don't like him. They don't like him for two reasons. Number one, dad, who's Jacob, favors him. And he expresses it by giving him gifts like a coat of many colors. That's not a good way to parent. If you're going to buy one a coat of many colors, you buy all of them a coat of many colors. But he didn't do that. The second reason that they don't like him is because Joseph is having these dreams as a young man, and he shares these dreams with his older brothers. The basic bottom line of the dream that he's having is that his older brothers will bow down to him. Now, Here is a lower story application, a note to self. If you have such dreams, keep them to yourself. (laughs) Because as a general rule, older siblings do not want to hear how they're going to bow down to you. Young Joseph just was not prepared for his lack, the lack of enthusiasm of his older siblings. Now, as the story unfolds, one day, Jacob, the dad, asked Joseph to go out into the field to fetch his brothers who were out tending the sheep. And as they see Joseph coming in a distance, they see this as a grand opportunity to ditch their brother Joseph. And as the story unfolds, we see that what they decide ultimately to do is to sell their brother to a band of Ishmaelites into slavery. Now, you may recall the Ishmaelites from last week uh, are the offspring of Abraham and Hagar. And the Bible told us that a nation would emerge from the Ishmaelites, but there, there would always be conflict between the Ishmaelites or the Arab nation and Isaac and the Jewish nation. And here's one example of that conflict. So they sell Joseph into slavery or sell him to the Ishmaelites. And then what they do is they take Joseph's coat of many colors and they dip it deep into animal's blood and they take it back to Jacob the father and they say, we don't know what happened to Joseph. We think he was mauled by a wild beast. Now for kids in this room, you thought you had problems with your brothers and sisters. How about this for sibling rivalry? And this is the dysfunctional family that God is building a great nation on. And all of us find at least some level of comfort that he might still be able to use our family. Joseph ends up being sold by the Ishmaelites into slavery in Egypt to the captain of the guard 
of Pharaoh, a guy named Potiphar. Now, if you brought your story, I want you to open up to the map, and we're not only teaching you the chronology of the Bible, but hopefully teaching you the geography of the Bible, and we've invited you to bring a pen or a pencil, or some of you now are starting to bring your crayons, which I think makes church really fun. And I want you to identify the travels of Joseph. Now, if you'll put maybe a stick person or like a triangle and put a J in it, representing Joseph and pop a head on him and have him starting in the area of Jerusalem, also known as the area of Canaan, and have him travel with the line down into Egypt. The story of Joseph unfolds in Egypt. So continue to do that. Now, what we see is this tragic thing has happened to Joseph, but as soon as this tragic thing happens to him, a surprising sort of turn of events takes place on page 24 of the story, or Genesis 39 and verse 2. It simply says this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Even though God allowed for his brothers to abuse him and to sell him, he's now visiting with Joseph and choosing to prosper him. And this is a very significant observation. You're going to see it throughout the story, and it gives us some clue as to how God might be involved in our lives that might help you. With God's help, Joseph quickly rises, and he is put in charge of Potiphar's entire house. But then another twist comes, another bomb drops. On page 25 of the story, or Genesis 39 and verse 6, it tells us that Joseph was well-built and handsome. Kind of like I'm going to be one day, as soon as my new workout comes from that infomercial that I ordered. I'm going to work, it's going to be amazing. Well, he's already there. He's already there. He's well-built and handsome. And it says that Potiphar's wife takes notice of this and she makes repeated advances onto Joseph, but Joseph does the right thing and he refuses. But she won't take no for an answer and so she decides that she's going to set him up out of her jealousy and she lies and says that Joseph made an advance at her and she tells Potiphar, Potiphar gets angry and he puts him into prison back down again. Joseph's life here at the opening of the story is like a seesaw. He's up, he's down, he's up, he's down, and now he's down, except we see immediately back up again. On page 25 of the story, or Genesis 39, verses 20 through 21, it jumps back up again with these words. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Underline that. The Lord was with him. He showed kindness to him and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now again, we see that God allowed this unjust uh, attack on Joseph's character, and he allows him to go to prison. Yet once Joseph is in prison, immediately the Lord is with him and puts favor on him, and he rises in power and is put in charge of the entire prison, even though he's a prisoner himself. Now one of the things that God did for Joseph while he was in prison was gave him the ability to interpret dreams. The ability to interpret dreams. Boy, would I like him to take a stab at some of the wacky dreams I've had. See how he does with that. The story tells us that he is in prison for two years. 
when he gets a call from Pharaoh, the main dude of Egypt, and Pharaoh is asking him to come visit him to interpret a dream he keeps having over and over again, but can't find out what it means. Now on page 26 of the story, or Genesis chapter 41, verses 14 through 16, this is how the story unfolds. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, what you're about to read is very important. Underline it, or at least take notice of it. He says, Joseph says, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Very important that Joseph recognizes that this gift of interpreting dreams comes from God. Very important. Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh based upon the gift that God had given him. And basically, this is what it says. This is what the dream means. There's going to be seven years of a bumper crop, lots of food, followed by seven years of famine or no food. And this is very valuable information for a Pharaoh or for a president to have. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 46, tells us that Pharaoh believes so much in this young man that he puts him in charge of everything. He is second in command in all of Egypt. And the story tells us that when this happens, Joseph is 30 years old. Well, as the story unfolds, we see what Joseph said comes true. There are seven years of harvest, and Joseph, as the leader, stores up enough food to get him through the seven years of famine. Now, no other nation knows this information, but all the other nations are being affected by this sort of global-like famine. And at the end of the seven years the seven of, of, of plenty, the seven years of famine begins, but under Joseph's leadership, they are prepared. Now, the famine, like I said, is affecting everyone, including Joseph's family back in Canaan, Jacob and his brothers. So Jacob, Joseph's dad, sends the older brothers to Egypt to barter their stuff in return for some food so that they don't die. They have no idea who they're going to run into. The story tells us that when Joseph's brothers make their way down to Egypt, Joseph is 39 years old, and they have no idea that their brother survived. 22 years has passed from that day when they sold him down the river or threw him under the bus. Now Joseph, alive and well, has more power than you can possibly imagine. What is Joseph going to do when his brothers appear? Well, the first thing we see is when Joseph's brothers arrive into Egypt, the very first thing that they do, even though they don't recognize him, is that they bow down to him. Do you catch that? They bow down to him just like the dream said that they would, except they didn't recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? Number one, they weren't looking for him. And number two, Egyptian men wore a lot of makeup, which is kind of creepy, but it makes it hard to recognize your younger brother with makeup on. They don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. 
What is Joseph going to do? Ooh, baby, if Jerry Springer can get a hold of this story. Put extra bouncers in place because Joseph is going to do what you would expect him to do after his brothers did what they did to him, right? You can see it coming. No, you can't see it coming. When Joseph meets his brothers, even though they don't recognize him, Joseph doesn't do what you think he's going to do. After several encounters, Joseph finally reveals his identity, and it says in the story that he forgives them. How could he do that? How could after all that's taken place, a young man being sold by his brothers and being torn from the love of his father and the love of his family and the life that it could have been, 22 years of the best years of our life are wasted. How could he just, from the very get-go, forgive them? And here's the answer, and you're going to want to write this down. Joseph captured the upper story. Joseph captured what God was up to, the bigger plan. On page 31 of the story, or Genesis 45, verses 3 through 8, we see what Joseph tells his brothers. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence, and they should be. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. In the upper story, it was God who had this planned all along. Later on, as uh, he restates this to him by saying this favorite and famous line, what you intended for evil... God intended for good. What you did in the lower story was wrong, and they paid consequences for this. You'll see in the story, they never really forgive themselves. They never really are relieved of guilt. They never really believed that Joseph forgave them, and they lived with that their entire life. What Joseph is saying to them, what you did in the lower story that you intended for evil God intended for good. You know what that means? God is going to use every single one of us to accomplish his upper story. He can use our disobedience and our evil, but we'll miss the blessing, or he can use our lives directed toward him and we get the blessing. And Joseph captured that. You see, God is revealing himself and his plan to get us back. He's revealing his plan through the development of this nation. Ultimately, you know what's going to happen. He's going to reveal himself and his plan in the most intense way in many years to come by becoming one of them in flesh and bones. But in order for this to happen, the nation of Israel must survive. It must survive. And if there was not a plan, they would have died from this famine, but God went ahead of them and he made a provision and he put Joseph in the right place at the right time for this to happen. And somewhere in the journey, Joseph got over all the stuff that the brothers did to him and somewhere in this journey, he captured what God was up to, what God was trying to do. So Joseph, out of his position And power not only provides enough food for Jacob, his father, and their extended family to survive, but he moves them down to Egypt. 
and he gives them the land, the fertile land of Goshen, where they can tend to their sheep as shepherds. And it tells us in the story that Israel survives the great famine. This call on Joseph's life that began when he was just a young man at 17, went all the way to the age of 13, took 22 years of the best years of his life. A hard, but now we see a purposeful life to carry out the bigger plan of God, the upper story. And we learn in this story that full devotion to God involves giving our lives fully over to the service of God in the upper story. And some of you looking at this, imagining that this happened to you, you would say, you know what? This gives cause for Joseph to be angry with God. Because you'd say, if God is God, why couldn't God just sort of jettison Joseph to Egypt, give him favor, and miss all of this up and down stuff and just make him second in command of Pharaoh? And those of you who've been walking with God and reading his word for some time know that that's not how God does it. God always prepares the person for the challenges ahead, and he uses trials, and he uses testing to equip us into trust in God. Someone said, God cannot use a person until he has deeply hurt him. And that's painful to hear, but what God wants us to do is God wants us to, uh, to trust in him. So that when he gives us his favor, when he gives us his position of power, it doesn't go to our head, leaving us thinking that I did it, but rather it leaves us thinking that God did it through me. Maybe God's seeking to use my life to accomplish something bigger. And you know what, folks? That may be, I know it is, exactly what God is wanting to do with your life. The story tells us that Joseph went on to live to be 110 years old. 110 years old. Yes, he had 22 years of a difficult season of his life, but the story tells us he had 71 years left. 71 years where he was with his dad and extended family and his children, and he enjoyed a mighty position of power and influence in Egypt and watched over and protected the nation of Israel so they could continue in the plan that God had for them. On page 34... At the story, on the story, or Genesis chapter 50 in verses 22 and 23, we come to the conclusion of Joseph's life. And anybody here that is a grandparent, raise your hand if you're a grandparent. Anybody in this room that's a grandparent gets what this is going to say about the end of Joseph's life. It says on page 34, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, that was his son, and also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, that was his second son. The son of Manasseh were placed, on, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. The ultimate expression of the fullness of Joseph's life comes with the setting of grandkids on his knees. Grandparents, do you get that? The fullness of life, seeing and experiencing and holding your grandkids on your knees. Joseph saw the upper story, and it made his life in the lower story richer. It made all the junk that happened to him in the lower story survivable. Whatever junk happens to me here, Joseph said, is not how it ends for me. God's got a bigger plan. Some of you desperately needed to hear this message today because your life is not turning out like you had envisioned it and you need some clarity.
There's a New Testament passage that really captures the story of Joseph and maybe the story of your life in the Word of God. It's a word of promise. And I want to put it on the screen. It's Romans 8, 28. And I want us to say it out loud together. Let's read it together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. This passage of scripture tells us that we can be living life in the lower story and life could be going really tough for us. But in the end, God is going to work it out for the good. Now, this is not a true principle or a promise for every single person. There are conditions. First of all, the person needs to be a Christian. That is, a person who has asked Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins that separates them from God. It's not something you do. It's something God does for you to put you in a place of a relationship with God. But you can't just be a Christian. This promise in Romans 8.28 applies to those who are loving God with their life and whose life is being used to fulfill God's purposes. You read the scriptures, you identify what God is up to in the upper story, and you wake up every morning and saying, God, I got a lot of stuff to do today in the lower story, but I really ultimately want my life to be about accomplishing your purposes in the upper story. I want, to, I want my life to count in that way. And this should evoke one of three responses from you in the room today. Number one, if you're not a Christian, it should make you want to be a Christian like nothing else. To know that whatever you are dealing with today or whatever you deal with tomorrow, God is going to work it out if you come to him. It should make you want to just, like even before I finish the message, just dart down here and ask me how that works out. I'm going to ask you to wait. But I'm telling you, you should want to become a Christian because of the promise of God. You should want that. Because this principle doesn't apply to you if you're holding out on God. Number two, for those of you who are followers of Christ, but not just taking advantage of that, but are loving up on God and wake up every morning and say, God, I don't totally get all of this, but I want my life to be focused on what you are doing versus me asking you all the time to serve my success in the lower story. I want my life in the reverse to be about what you are about. And I want to capture that. It should cause you to say, hey, God is a good God and everything's going to work out for me. But maybe some of you followers of Christ are in a 22-year season of your life right now. Maybe it's not 22 years. Maybe it's 50 years. Maybe it's just three days. Maybe it's just two weeks. But you're in right dab in the middle of it, and you think your life is over. I'm here to tell you on the basis of the promise of God, if your life is aligned to his purpose, this is not how it ends for you. God promises that he's going to work everything out for the good. And you need to lean into God's word today in a major way before you walk out of here. Full devotion to God involves surrendering our will for his will. He wants to use our lives just like he did Joseph's life to keep the unfolding of his wonderful plan to get us all back going. He wants to use us, but he needs to hear us say that even though we don't get always what that means he wants us to know, he wants us to say that whatever it means, without reservation, I throw my hat in the ring. I am in God in identifying my life with your upper story. Now, I love partnering with Max Lucado to be your minister. I really do. It's been a lot of fun watching your eagerness. It's been a lot of fun watching you open up the story and anticipating what's coming next. And I have to tell you, it's been a lot of fun. I don't know if you know this or not, but we've experienced some pretty healthy growth in the last couple months. 
and it's been wonderful to see. Matter of fact, if you look at our attendance on all of our campuses, including children and students, we've been running around 10,000 people. Isn't that awesome? 10,000 people? When I was 15 years old and I set that goal, I was just, as it turns out, 2,000% off. But I'm here to tell you in the same spirit of Joseph, I no more have the ability to be a good minister to you than Joseph had the ability to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. Whatever you get out of this church, whatever you get out of the word of God through my life, I'm telling you, I promise you it's true, is coming to you because of God, not because of me. So as your minister, who's gotten here by an incredible turn of events that only God can take credit for, I ask you this question. Based upon what you heard today, are you in? I ask you today as your minister, who has no business to be up here, God wants to use your life like he did Joseph. So as your minister, I'm asking you, are you in?